This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Jennifer. Chad Thompson. De- no, Chad I, Thompson's the no, host. I'm the host. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, I'm the host. <laughs> Today on The Premise, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Earth Day in a pretty unusual way, from home and at a safe distance from one another. And according to a study in the San Francisco Bay Area, because people are staying home and not driving to work, we are seeing an improvement in our air quality all over the planet due to reduced air pollutants and fewer emissions. 50 years ago, people were literally dying from smog. Action was needed. The first Earth Day brought out nearly 20 million Americans, which was 10% of the population at the time. Today, we continue to celebrate Earth Day, but we continue to face a whole new set of environmental challenges on a global scale. And some may say the time is running out for planet Earth. Our guest today, author Jerry Udelson, helped organize that first Earth Day from his college campus, Caltech in Pasadena. Today, he holds civil and environmental engineering degrees from Caltech and Harvard. He has been a key figure in the U.S. and global green building movements. He is the author of 12 professional books in the field of green building and sustainable design, and he is known as The Godfather of Green, which is also the title of his latest book, available today, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir. Jerry Udelson, welcome to The Premise. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is pretty awesome. So it's Earth Day. Your book is available today. And congratulations. Well, as I like to say in love, war and business, timing is everything. (laughs) Well, and I and I had planned three years ago that this book would be released on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And lo and behold, it actually happened. And here it is. And it's kind of cool that, you know, the premise happens to drop on Wednesdays and Earth Day this year is on a Wednesday. So most auspicious. When you were a kid, you wanted to be a physicist or an astronomer. You wanted to make a difference in the world. At what point did you decide to pursue civil and environmental engineering? You know, I I had a um, professor at Caltech when I was a junior, I got acquainted with him. He was actually my advisor, academic advisor. And he was very interested in social problems that could be solved by engineers and kind of mm-hmm. drew, drew me into his orbit mm. and had me research um, what was proposed at the time was two more dams in the Grand Canyon. You may know there's Lake Mead, uh, Hoover Dam, which was built in the 30s, and another one called Glen Canyon Dam, which was built in the 50s or 60s. And they wanted to build more. And environmentalists obviously thought that was a bad idea, but, you know, I was going to research it and find out. So I did, and I wrote this long report that he eventually gave to our local congressman saying that this was a really bad idea for a whole lot of reasons. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was just like an engineering nerd student. Right. Yeah. And so that kind of awakened a little bit of awareness in me. And at the same time, the Sierra Club was running ads in the New York Times, full-page ads against these two dams. So that was 
really the beginning of the Sierra Club's activism was these mm. dams in the Grand Canyon. So it kind of dovetailed for me. And anyway, I decided in graduate school, I would delve into this more and study pollution control engineering. And that mm. kind of put me on a path over the next few years, which uh, made me more aware of what was happening when Earth Day came along. Was this a popular way of thinking back then, you know, social engineering and, you know, taking a look at the environment? Was that at the forefront of young people's minds then? No, I mean, we were protesting the Vietnam War. We were right. protesting racism and we had the civil rights movement and riots mm. in all of the big cities. I mean, really race riots like we don't have anymore, but we had them then. And and then we were, you know, at the beginnings of the tune in, turn on, drop out, hippie culture, counterculture. So sure. this was the ferment that was going on. This in the, and in 1968, the Democratic National Convention w erupted in chaos when the Chicago police started beating up anti-war demonstrators, peaceful demonstrators in the mm -hmm. street, streets of Chicago. So this was everybody was like against something. But mm -hmm. what really kicked off the environmental movement, certainly in California, was a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara in 1969, which was at that time the largest in U.S. history and mm. the most dramatic in a way because not only were the beaches that I would go to on occasion uh, covered with oil, but wow. all of the seabirds and and sea mammals, the sea lions and so forth were dying because they were coated with oil and and oil is very um, poisonous. To, so you saw uh, physical evidence of what was happening to the environment due to well, this Well, it was more than that. I mean, I was living in Los Angeles. We had one day out of every two was a stage one smog alert, which meant you shouldn't be breathing if you have an option. Wow. Um, and, wow. And that was like one out of every two days. Um, and when I was uh, an athlete, I was a basketball player in college, I would work out and I you could see the smog from one end of the gym to the other. It was hmm. that thick. And so we in the gym, in the gym. And then when <laughs> I would finish a workout, my lungs would ache for hours from the pollution. And oh it led God. us to coin a kind of a macabre joke that I wouldn't want to breathe any air I couldn't see. Mm. So uh, that was the smog. And if you actually look at photos from that time, you could see visibility was a couple hundred yards in Los mm. Angeles, which is should be nice, bright blue, sunny skies. But that was what that the air pollution, the beach pollution, the water pollution in the ocean such that the beaches were closed a lot. Those were the things that got everyone's attention in the late 60s. And of course, the excuse was, well, that's just the price of progress. Wow. And we, don't, we can't do anything about it. And hmm. of course, young people who had been protesting the war and protesting uh, against uh, racism, etc., they weren't going to take that for an answer. Well, we can't do anything about it. It needed right. a, a catalyst, and Earth Day became the catalyst. Yeah. 
Can you take us back to that first Earth Day in 1970? What was it like? Describe the overall excitement and the energy of the people involved. Well, it had started the previous fall when a U.S. Senator, Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin, announced this Earth Day. And a few months later, he recruited uh, a young guy who was a Harvard grad student named Dennis Hayes. And they set up an office in D.C. And eventually, and uh, Nelson, Senator Nelson went out and raised the money, and they eventually had like 80 people. They mm -hmm. renamed his original idea as Earth Day. And then they just sent out this big ad in the New York Times, Earth Day, April 22nd, you know, protect the planet kind of thing. And all of a sudden, all of the colleges in the country, uh, 1,500 colleges and universities, students like myself started saying, well, we should do something for Earth Day. And, yeah, right. And then, <laughs> and then you know, this, this several dozen people in Washington, D.C. started putting out, you know, ideas. And it was originally going to be a teach-in. You know, that was mm. a Vietnam War era uh, innovation where if you wanted to get people to come out against the war, you had to educate them first about mm. what the issues were and so forth. And that has started kind of in the radical uh, San Francisco Bay Area at UC Berkeley and so forth. But the teach-in was a live idea. But at the same time, we wanted to do a political protest. We wanted to show people, politicians particularly, that this had a lot of popular support, that ending pollution, protecting the planet. And one thing I've learned about politicians over the years, they don't have a lot of practical skills, but one of them is they can count. <laughs> and, and they can... And 20 and, million Americans is a big number. And when they saw 20 million people and the sort of godfather of the news, Walter Cronkite, who you mm. may have heard some of his recordings of the first moon landings and so forth. I mean, if Walter Cronkite said it was real, it was real. It's real. Yeah. And yeah. so he did this incredible program. But fundamentally, it was young people. And then the community around those young people came out. And there was something like eight to 10,000 secondary and elementary schools that did things. And at Caltech, we had these educational booths and we had our local congressman was one of the speakers. And what happened was they actually canceled Congress because mm. something like 300 congressmen and women were out giving speeches that day. So they couldn't mm. hold it. So that shows you how all of a sudden, you know, how politicians like to watch which way the parade's going and then run around and get in front of it. And all of a sudden, <laughs> and even the Republicans, because the first environmental laws were signed into law by Richard Nixon as Richard president. Nixon. That's and, right, yeah. And and Ronald Reagan as governor of California at mm. the time. So mm -hmm. this had a tremendous amount of popular support and everything that we, most of what we have today as environmental laws came about within the five years after Earth Day. The Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species yeah. Act. You get out yeah. a whole list and it was the political power. And at that time, the Republicans were the president, but the Democrats ran the Congress in both mm. houses quite and had for the la previous 15 years. So 
once the Democrats in Congress decided to do something, the Republicans in the White House went along with it because it had such popular support. So that's what Earth Day really generated. It was a mass demonstration. It was a massive educational effort. And those two things together gave it both a short-term and a long-term effect. Yeah. Do you think they intended for it to be an annual event at the time of its inception? I don't think anybody thought that far ahead. You know, we were, we were young. It's like, hey, let's yeah. go have some, let's go do something <laughs> positive. Let's go have right. some fun. And then if everyone says, my God, this is so big. We, we can't just let it die. So we started having these annual Earth Days, but really nothing had that much oomph to it because, you know, you know how students are. You organize something, you do something, and then you move on. And sure, right. What's next? That, yeah. Well, and then you you leave, and then somebody else. Yeah, they're only around up. for four, six, eight years. Right. <laughs> yeah. Keep counting, but it's. it's <laughs> <laughs> Some people are students for ten years. 12 That's years. right. Well, you know, in, in in Europe, in places like Italy, where college is free, students never leave. So. You actually talk. Story. Yeah, <laughs> you. You actually talk in your book about at one point you thought about following in your father's footsteps, joining the military and going to West Point. And had you done that, you went in, you would have ended up on the front lines in Vietnam. Well, you know, I always think if more I, than likely. Yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I, I have some. You know, I couldn't have worn contact lenses in Vietnam, so I don't know. I had some. My my vision was bad in one eye, but in any case. You know, my father had been in World War II and, and you know, he had a lot of respect for the military. And, you know, I had his, like, like the oldest son um, is always like looking to the father, for examples. Um, and, and so, you know, that was an influence. And I, our local congressman was a good friend of my father's and you have to get a congressional appointment. So I probably could have gotten one. But sure. You know, at that time, you know, the space race was going on and I really began to be much more interested in science and, mm. as you said earlier, wanting to be a physicist. Well, when I, once I got into classes with real physicists, um, after two years, they said, why don't you try engineering? So, <laughs> <laughs> so, and the rest so, is history, right? <laughs> so the rest is his, is his story. <laughs> You know, Ed Begley Jr. writes a very moving forward to your book. He talks about how that first Earth Day in 1970 affected him deeply. In fact, he went out and bought an electric car. And I didn't even know electric cars were a thing in 1970. But he, he makes a joke about how kids on scooters would pass him and laugh, which well, I you, love that visual. <laughs> you, you, were, you were looking at something that wasn't much more than a golf cart, you know. So, right, yeah. You know, so Battery technology was not very good back then. So then a kid on a bicycle can go faster than a golf cart. So that's, <laughs> a golf cart. But, but right. uh, what I liked about Ed is I first met him in 1988 when I was a candidate for Congress, another story I tell in the book. But Ed was driving an electric car then, and his problem was he lived in the San Fernando Valley in Studio City, and he had to go on auditions in Hollywood and other parts of L.A. And 
to get over the Coenga Pass, which is only like 1,200 feet or something, drained a lot of his battery. So he right, was always worried after an audition whether he'd get home again. He could make it home or not. <laughs> but he, he was committed. But he was committed. Yeah, As totally. I like to say, he was as committed as the pig in ham and eggs. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's committed. Yeah, he talks about, you know, how he wanted to personally reduce his environmental footprint, even though he, you know, he knew personal actions alone aren't going to save the planet. And I hear that a lot from people today. You know, what can I do? I'm only one person. You know, I wonder, do you have advice to people who feel that their actions are meaningless and the cause is hopeless? Well, when you throw a stone in a pond, you get ripples. Mm. And indeed, when you do something people notice, you know, and now, of course, with Facebook and all the social media, there, you know, as sometime this spring, people are going to start posting photos of, you know, the produce from their garden. And I'm in a smaller place now, but I've had a garden every year since the early 70s, somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so it, it isn't that it's going to feed you, but you might need a couple of acres for that, or at least an acre. But it connects you with different rhythms. And I think that however you do it, connecting with the earth, getting dirt under your fingernails, so to speak, is an essential activity for any person, whether it's forest bathing that's now popular, the Japanese talk about, or in our case, living here in the Southern California, the, the ocean bathing, you know, getting into nature, feeling the earth or the sand under your feet, um, it does something for you psychologically that makes you willing to consider larger scale activities. It doesn't mean that you should just grow your garden like Candide and the rest of the world is going to be fine. But it, sure. does, <laughs> it does mean that you affect other people because they start to think, well, you know, I really should be doing that. And course they some of them do but ultimately where we are now with respect to things like climate change the climate crisis is we have to both act individually and collectively and i think one of the messages of earth day is you do need to have a collective consciousness raising to get things done and that mm -hmm. i think is what the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis is going to do, not just for healthcare and emergency preparedness, but it's going to force people to think about, well, how come I got to breathe this awful air year round when I don't have to breathe it now? And obviously the reason is because we've shut down so much auto traffic, so many free, and airline yeah. traffic and industry mm. But couldn't we have this clean air and still have a thriving economy? And the answer, mm -hmm. of course, is yes, we could, but we'd have to do a few things differently. Right. Yeah, COVID-19 has changed the way we look at things. I mean, Chad and I started a garden. We, we typically have gardens anyway, but I got to tell you, it's a much larger scale than I would normally it's, have. It's crazy because it's not just a larger scale. It's now that we look at every single piece of trash that we produce as 
possibility. And, and yeah. it's like, oh, we could plant something in that, or mm-hmm. that then becomes something for seed starters, or everything mm-hmm. is, is reused as opposed to just chucked into the recycling bin. Yeah, we're really looking at everything through new eyes. Well, you know, if you, if you go to a lot of the poorer countries, India, which I've been to, and Kenya, you don't find a lot of trash. People find <laughs> ways to make use of everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a mentality that's obviously born of their poverty. And as soon sure. as they get rid of that poverty, they start generating trash just like Americans. But, you know, there is a different consciousness going on now. And you've probably seen these videos of beach cleanups in Mumbai where just one guy starts out with a few trash bags, cleans a little section of beach, and the next day a few more people come out and, you know, so and it grows and the beach becomes pristine, so pristine that sea turtles start laying their eggs <laughs> on the right. beach where they had basically couldn't, wouldn't do it before because it was so trashy and polluted. So there is a different consciousness happening and I think a new world is being born out of this crisis. I think so too. Absolutely. Man, I hope so. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. The fact that there's hope, like I see hope out of something that is, is so utterly, you know, fear-inducing because of the uncertainties. But I keep seeing really good things happening, goodwill among people and the type of community that we're creating with one another, you know, on Zoom. And, you know, here we are doing this podcast over the phone lines, you know. There's ways that we reach reach each other and connect when, with one another when we're forced into that that situation, into that that space. And that's what I see happening, and it gives me a lot of hope. Um, not, not just that we're saving yogurt containers and, (laughs) and, and recycling everything, but, you know, we're looking at everything differently and do we all have to go to work? Will more people work from home? Will we experience a shift, you know, in the, the work from home culture as well? I'm wondering. Well, that's, that's the, uh, the big question. And I think the answer is like my brother in the Bay area works for Visa International as a paralegal, and he's a, he had already started working from home three days a week. So, because he didn't have to be Easy in an shift office, for him. you know? Yeah. It's like you come into the office maybe once a month for an all-hands meeting of some kind in your department or in your group, and the rest of the time you're pretty much free to work however you, you want. And, and so getting together in an office is one thing, uh, you know, factories don't work that way. And we've seen already the having to shut down food production factories because of um, too many people testing for the virus. Mm-hmm. But but offices, office culture will definitely change. It's interesting because we used to have the cubicle culture where right. everybody had their individual workstations and, you know, you'd, you'd have these. I once worked in a place that cubicles were... 66 inches high so that's five and a half feet and (laughs) and and so you had these walls and inside your cubicle which you put up your family photos to remind you why you were putting up with this nonsense totally right (laughs) you know but now then we went to the open office plan in the 2000s and just everything's now open office and you have we work and all these other open office environments 
I don't think anybody now is going to want to work cheek to jowl with people they right. don't even know, all yeah. sitting on laptops and sipping espresso. So Yeah. Yeah, why would you do that? Well, it's interesting. People say, oh, I can't work from home. I've heard this a lot. You know, how do you do it? How do you stay motivated? And when people are forced- How do you keep your forced, cat off of your lap? Yeah, you don't, right? And why <laughs> should you? <laughs> you know, let the cat in. I mean, that's something that's been happening too with like work meetings and Zoom is, you know, we're seeing, you know, the kids come into the room and interrupt the meeting and we're seeing the cat walk in and meow and our cat was just meowing a couple seconds ago. And it's like, we're seeing some humanity. Like, you know, there's something real happening in our interactions that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. I, I think there's also productivity issues, and and I notice how everything is slowed down a little. And the kind I of, love it. The kind of, <laughs> I think it's needed. The kind of expectations that one might have for, you know, how quickly something would be done, are all right. of a sudden like you have to temper it's like, it. Oh, you know, yeah. it's, like, it's good for in, us. Get in line. Yeah. This morning, I went to Costco, and. Mm you know, and for the quote, senior hours, um, <laughs> nobody gets carded. So I guess you could just put some white, right. hair, white dye in your hair, but, <laughs> you just, but it was like, yeah. used to be Costco. You just kind of walk into your shopping, you wait in line, you, you check out. Now there was a 25 minute line to get in because they limit mm. the number of people in the store at any given time. So there's, you know, I was like pluses and minuses, but I think we're all like, after a month of this, we're all antsy to resume a little more interaction. I think we kind of got into hugging each other, and now it's sort of like, get away mm -hmm. from me, you you potentially. Stand six feet away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and six feet away, you you uh, asymptomatic beast. <laughs> I don't know. See, see, I'm an uptight Midwesterner, so six feet is even a little close for me. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> well, it's six feet apart or six feet under, as they say. So Right. Your book is incredibly warm and very real. You don't hold back the embarrassing moments either. Like, for example, when you were at camp as a kid and you learn how to pee in the right direction, apparently you peed into the wind and that didn't work out so well. Well, I, oh. I, th I think the real difference, <laughs> the first thing you learn is don't pee uphill if you're a boy, because mm -hmm. uh, water tends to run downhill. There you so, go. <laughs> okay. So that, that was your, your early grounding in physics right there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, I, when I became an environmental engineer, I also learned that wastewater flows downhill. So there you have it. <laughs> There's another scene in your book where you answer a pretty important phone call and you are on the toilet in an airport. <laughs> and I, So no, it's not about toilet paper. It's more about how real your book is. And it reads like a novel, you know, bringing that character to life, your, yourself and, and discovering who you are. When you set out to write this book, did you know exactly what you wanted to write and the message that it would deliver? Or did it just sort of happen as you were writing? You know, I had a rough, I mean, really rough sense that I wanted to talk about these three environmental movements, the Earth Day and environmental uh, movement and solar power and wind power and then green building. And I wanted to talk about my meditation practice and and sort of spiritual awakening. Um, that was the, the gist of it, you know, and, and the first draft was, you know, yada, 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 yada. It was like, 
you know, all things. And I had a couple of good readers and they basically Always said, helpful. this is, it was boring. <laughs> and one of them who had written her own memoir about being anorexic, um, who was a writing coach, she said, you know, you have to practice free writing. You have to go deeper. And mm. so I just started doing that. And then as the book evolved, it got more interesting. It got a little deeper, but it still wasn't there. I still realized that I was holding back mm. and that there were things. I mean, you know, it's a me memoir and you have to have a story arc, they say. And so you can't, particularly a long period of time that's being covered, you can't tell everything. But I wanted to... to I wanted it to be interesting for people. I wanted people to get something valuable out of it. And I wanted to really explore for myself what were the kind of um, turning points and seminal moments. And so things started popping up. Like I said, mm -hmm. that, that first thing at my father's funeral, I hadn't thought about, I mean, in a long time. And, mm -hmm. and, a story of my mother and getting lost in New York City when I was with my mother and my siblings. Um, those things, fortunately, I had kept a few, I'm not a journaler, but I had kept a few journals from way back when and from when I first met my meditation teacher. And, and so I was able to fill in some things. And I said, oh, yeah, my God, that happened. And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. and, and then just as I was kind of, I had gotten a um, publisher uh, last August, and I was, you know, now I have to get serious, and, and Earth Day is coming up in eight months, and, and I had to polish it. And that's when some of the things started coming back to me, and I loosened up the writing, and I, I realized there were, there were things that didn't really fit in anywhere, but they would make great beginning of a chapter. And yeah. so each, nice. each, each yeah. chapter begins with, a particular story which has some resonance throughout the chapter. And so that, yeah. I think, is what makes it an interesting book. And then, fortunately, Ed Bagley, who's a kind of, I had met, as I said, years ago, but a friend of a friend, if you will, agreed to write the foreword, which gave it some, you know, cachet and a kind of a quasi-celebrity name on the front cover um, because... I, I'm known in the green building world, but I'm certainly not known for people who might be interested in reading a memoir. So sure, yeah. It, it, and then fortunately, the publisher came up with a great cover and she had actually, because um, they only do eight to 10 titles a year. That's a small press. And, and she had been uh, trained as a graphic artist. So her covers were always really knockouts. And so she came up with a great cover. And, and, you know, gradually, and then I sent it out to my friends and we got some nice advanced reviews. Um, and there you go. And so yeah. gradually everything congealed in the late fall. And, you know, we were fortunate that because of the way publishing goes today, your drop dead date on making changes is uh, pretty close to your publication date, which didn't used to be the case. Um, and so... Because with Ingram, you know, everything gets printed almost on demand, right? So, yeah, right, right. you know, we were able to make some changes. And, you know, it's interesting because 
you have these sort of Homer Simpson moments when you, you read something and you say, oh my God, I totally blew this, <laughs> how to spell this person's name or this sequence of events. And I had one other superpower, which was my wife. We've been married almost 35 years now. And she forgets nothing. Now that's good mm. news and bad news. <laughs> yeah, I could see where that could get you into trouble. <laughs> you know, it's like, do you remember that time in 1989 where you did this stupid thing? I'm like, no, I don't remember that. Well, I do. <laughs> you know? but, so when when we were, you know, one thing the book needed because I this is a lot. Some things are a long time ago. It needed more dialogue, and one of the things that she remembered was when we first met, and I, you know, because like. Most guys don't remember the conversation you had when you first met your spouse. Um, sure. You know, after so many decades. Um, and so she, yeah, I said, well, what did we talk about? And, well, you talked about this. And I thought that was boring, but I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> she stuck with you anyway. Good for her. And, and, and good for you. This, we had this sort of uh, blooper field you know, honeymoon and, you know, and so, so I, she was able to flesh out a lot of details. And, you know, one of the things I, I had this crazy idea that I would write a second memoir, which would be the outtakes and everything that wound up on the so-called cutting room floor. But mm. I've squashed that. It was too much effort to write the first one. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, your book is, as much about environmental activism as it is about your spiritual journey to find enlightenment. And, you know, you just mentioned the scene from your childhood in 1952. You're pretty little, I'm guessing. And you're walking ahead of your mother in this, you know, New York City, when all of a sudden a crowd of people are let out of a movie theater. And they unknowingly swarm around you. And you describe this moment of panic that overtakes you when you realize that you've been separated from your mother. You recall this same sensation of panic 20 years later when you feel separated from your own self by life's confusing onrush, is how you put it. Can you speak to this moment of realization and how it affected your lifelong journey to find yourself? Well, the first moment was just, you know, a, a kid. Um, I mean, I was seven or eight at the time. And, and so, you know, I was... I had some awareness, but it was actually a, a theater. So New York theaters are on Sundays, they usually, or Saturdays, I forget which it was, they usually have matinees at two o'clock. Sure. So if yeah. you're on the streets at four, roughly, all of a sudden, you know how theaters are the doors fling open and the, and the crowd people, comes out. out and they come, of yeah. Course, <laughs> everyone's elbowing each other to get a taxi. And because we were on, you know, 42nd Street by Times Square, where all the theaters are. So, you know, I was a little panicky as a kid and I wasn't, you know, eight years old, you're seven, whatever. You're still young. And I remember what I actually did. It. I kind of found a uh, street lamp and kind of hung on to that. Which is really smart, you know, that you didn't go like wandering around looking for it. you just stayed put as it and were my mother of course was a bit panicked even though she had lived in new york city as a young woman as a nurse um and and she was like shouting you know don't move don't move and so anyway the 
you know, that passed. And that wasn't like a um, childhood trauma. But when I had this meditation experience, which was I was already in my, probably in my 50s, it reminded me of that sense of panic and mm. kind of translating back to my young adulthood, how I, and a lot of us feel out of sorts. We don't really mm. know who we are. We don't really know what we want to do. We've, we've gone along and gone along with school and now we're in college and, you know, it's like life is happening. And, and yet it's like life in a life college is like life interrupted in, in a way for a lot of kids, which is why they drop out because it's not, nothing's happening. Right. Or you, you, you have a, a summer abroad in, you know, Venice or Florence or someplace, and that's your big adventure. And for most, so there was like this sense of not, not knowing who I am, not, not really, certainly after Earth Day, when I was, I dropped out, I went and lived in the woods, you know, became a quasi hippie and so forth. It was like, what am I supposed to do? And so there's mm. a little bit of panic in a way yeah. that, that creeps in if you're not following this kind of carefully prescribed life path, which some people do. And mm -hmm. it's not as many as you think. And, and for most people, it's like they cover up all that early stuff with a veneer of respectability as they get older. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or at least we try. Well, you know, it's like you have a life, you're, you're, you're living, you, you make money, you're active in your community, you have children, whatever. And, you know, you don't want to be reminded. So here I had this meditation experience, which reminded me of that feeling. Mm. And it was that feeling which led me onto a spiritual search because not only did I feel kind of at sea, um, I kind of had my gap year after graduate school instead of after high school. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of a bit of a retard. Uh, retarded learner. Um, but I met this young woman who was a student and uh, was five or six years younger than me. And she had the same urge for seeking something different because of the way she was brought up and, you know, also not feeling like she was really wanted. The single, mm. single child came along late in her parents' life etc. So she really egged me on because, you know, I'm an engineering student. The engineers are notoriously conservative. And yet the times, the times were in ferment and you couldn't help but be affected by it. So by the time I met her, I had already started teaching environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz. And she kept pushing. She, she wanted to do uh, you know, earth, earth goddess kind of stuff. I didn't really grab me, but, you know, we did some things <laughs> like that, you know, but mm -hmm. we, we started looking around and in the Bay Area where we lived at that time, there was this spiritual smorgasbord that you could snack from endlessly. Sure. There yeah. There was a lot all of kinds of teachers coming through there and these mm. big consciousness raising movements and things like EST, which was a program for more people in business about getting real 
everything was happening. And San Francisco had been a place of ferment, you know, 15 years earlier with the beatnik movement of the mid 50s. And, you know, this this was the place to be if you wanted to question how things were and think about it. And it was also where the Sierra Club was headquartered. The environmental movement had a very strong purchase there. And so it kind of brought these two things together for me in a way that I would probably not have found had I been living elsewhere. Hmm. Yeah. In 1976, Governor Jerry Brown created OAT, the Office of Appropriate Technology, and named you its first director. This was your chance to make something good happen for solar energy, which seems like it was pretty radical thinking during a time driven by fossil fuels and nuclear power. Solar had a reputation among ultra liberals and hippies. And I understand that you became known as the oat flakes, if I get that right. Did this feel like you were fighting an uphill battle at the time? Or did you feel confident that people would listen and you could make a difference? So so we started this Office of Appropriate Technology and it had its genesis in a book that had been published a few years earlier. And if you think about it in today's terms, it was like a sustainability office. You know, mm. and it was like, what could you do in state government to make it more sustainable? So we call it the Office of Appropriate Technology uh, because we got to, you know, in naming it, we got to say what we, what was appropriate, right? So we wanted sure. to have the last word. And so because the initials were OAT um, and people at that time who were into these sort of far out um, environmental things were called flakes, it naturally became oat flakes. And, you know, we actually designed a logo with a, a donkey with a feed bag that said OAT on it. Um, <laughs> that was our logo. And our first office was in the choir loft of a former mortuary, which kind of told us where things were going. Oh, uh, my gosh. <laughs> a harbinger, if you will. Secondhand, secondhand furniture. I mean, in state government, secondhand furniture is really, yeah. bad. It's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> because firsthand furniture isn't so good. So it's all made in the prisons. So, um, we had this thing and, you know, we did some things and it was more of an educational effort. Um, and then a couple years later, uh, and and after nine months, I was kind of tired of it because it wasn't really what I thought it would, had been. And I took an invitation to go to India and meditate for three months with Swami Muktananda at his ashram near Bombay. Mm. Mm. And when I came back, you know, somebody else had got the job as director and I went into doing some environmental consulting. Anyway, about a year later, they invited me back and said, well, I want to do something more serious around solar energy this time. And we have this national day coming up, which is with the same people that started Earth Day eight years earlier. It's called Sunday. And President Jimmy Carter is all is behind it. Uh, you know, he's supporting it. And so I said, you know, let's do something in California and of course, Jerry Brown at that time had run for president the first time in the Democratic primaries against Jimmy Carter two years earlier. And Carter had won those and, you know, Brown had a little bit of a sore spot. So when Carter announced this Solar Energy Day, Brown thought this would be a great chance to one up the president and have our <laughs> own thing. And, right. you know, maybe we could get this Earth Day mob to come out again. Well, mm -hmm. as it turned out, 
I like to say that the sun god, Apollo, it just doesn't have the emotional residence of the earth goddess, Gaia. Um, and so it was, and it was a top-down thing, not a bottom-up thing, the way Earth Day was. And so, you know, people came out and got educated about solar power, but it didn't have that emotional tinge of hmm. Earth Day, and it was never repeated, really. You often refer to the fact that there is no planet B. And can you speak to our current climate crisis? And do you think we have enough time to save our planet? Well, it's not saving the planet that's the issue, Jennifer. It's, <laughs> it's saving, saving us. The people who live on the planet as human beings. Well, that's true. Um, but we are in deep, deep yogurt um, mm -hmm. right now if we don't make ma major changes. And in some degrees, a lot of the warming that's happened is already baked into the pie for the next two or 300 years. It would take that long if we stop putting stuff in the atmosphere today, it would take that long for the oceans to absorb the carbon di excess carbon dioxide that's already there and go back to a, a pre, I guess, pre 20, 21st century warming. But the fact is we have temperatures now that human beings have not experienced in the entire evolution of the species in two or three million years. So this is unprecedented and the problem we have is that our current way of life is so culturally embedded in our psyches that the biggest issue is not technology. It really is culture change. And I yeah. think that's what makes it daunting. And that's why I talk in my last, the last chapter is an epilogue and it's addressed to young climate strikers as well, I'm passing the baton to you, so to speak. I'm an older guy, and you're going to have to live with this thing that we created. Um, but here are some things that I've learned that you might find helpful for your uh, struggle. And, you know, maybe 7% of us, pick a number, are cut out to be activists who will leave everything behind and go lie down in front of bulldozers and, and you know, chain ourselves to trees and pipelines and so forth <laughs> you know but most of us aren't going to do that but what we can do each of us is to talk about this issue how in whatever forums present themselves whether it's you're a public person or a private person or a social media person or an educator you have a forum even if it's just talking to your neighbors so i think that the real issue now is changing the dialogue Right. And one thing we learned from Earth Day, the dialogue then was, if you're going to save the environment, if you're going to stop pollution, you're going to destroy the economy. That was the argument 50 years ago. You see, hear the same nonsense today. It's the argument today, yeah. The fact yeah. of the matter is, we didn't. What we need to be doing in the next 10 years is starting to decelerate. And we can see with the few months of data that we have on COVID-19 shutdowns that we are actually on a glide path in terms of energy use and CO2 emissions that we need to be on. The problem, yeah. of course, is we have got to restart our economies because people mm -hmm. are suffering terribly. 
but yeah. we we already know what the glide path is and you know it's like well you're going to cut airline use by 95%. I'm not sure that's a feasible thing but maybe we'll all rethink this idea of you know going to Paris for the weekend if you live in New York or going to sure. Hawaii we have to start somewhere. So there're a lot of places to start and you could start in your garden and then you're going to say well do I really need to buy stuff that I then have to recycle or that I have to throw away? Um, and there's a lot of cultures which don't throw away stuff. They just repurpose it. And so mm -hmm. we're beginning, if you're in the building business, building, you know, large buildings, you begin to think about, well, how is this building going to be used in 50 years? How is it going to be used in 100 years? They're probably going to be used very differently. And shouldn't I design it for multiple uses over a long lifetime? In the 19th century, people used to live above their store, you know, and above any store. The ground floor was retail and the rest was housing. And we're starting to rediscover that. And that yeah, was like absolutely. in the 20th century, we wanted we wanted to separate all these uses. So everything would be nice and clean. The industry would be over here. Offices mm -hmm. would be over here, homes would be over there. And now we're discovering, well, we don't really have the kind of industry that we have to put somewhere far away because most of it is, you know, research labs and microchip factories and stuff that doesn't generate a lot of emissions. They could be in the middle of cities. And the same way you could live above the store and you have buildings now in LA, big, tall buildings are being built with housing above, hotels in the middle, office buildings below, retail down the first two stories, etc. And so we're, we're, we've already learned how to rethink a lot of our assumptions. So what we have to do is to get a new toolbox for the 21st century that's carbon neutral. And I think that is you know well in progress. And maybe I made some contribution to it in the green building movement to to moving us along. And that's kind of where the godfather of green came along. And it's kind of the end of my, my book. And you referred to one of the passages, which was actually doing research for a book <laughs> and sitting at an airport loo uh, when my phone rang. So I thought that was a fun way to start a chapter. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jerry Udelson, thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion with us today here on Earth Day, 50 year anniversary. And thank you for the conversation that you have started and you are continuing. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. You can learn more about Jerry Udelson at jerryudelson.net, where you can follow him on social and buy his book, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, available today where all books are sold. We encourage you to shop local and support your local boutique bookstores and reach out to Jerry with your questions and comments at his website. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at Pod Premise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>